Hello, welcome to the Engineers Collective. I'm Mark Hansford. And I'm Alex Wynn. And we are going to, today, talk you through the news in the civil engineering world this month. And in a little bit, we are going to be joined by Andrew Norton, formerly uh, Chief Engineer of, of Network Rail, and quite recently, Technical Director for High Speed 2. And he still retains a strategic advisory role. And we are very much looking forward to hearing Andrew's views on the future of rail. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Benelis software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. This month, we kind of want to start on quite a serious note, actually, don't we? Because it is an anniversary or something quite significant. Yeah, it's um, and it's not strictly news, but it is important anniversary it's going to be soon one year on from the devastating and fatal Polchevera collapse in Italy um, I think it's just important we haven't had such a disaster in our world in in quite some time and certainly in a sort of um, traditional sort of European continental engineering world particularly um, and we wrote quite extensively about it a year ago we tried to get behind some of the issues that might have led to the catastrophic collapse. Um, I think we've asked an, an awful lot of questions and I think we also wanted to bring it a bit home and make sure we're asking whether back in the UK are we really clear on the conditions of our assets, particularly bridges that carry passengers in cars and trains so frequently. Absolutely. And I mean, we wrote at the time, didn't we, that a, a bridge like Polchevera should never, ever, ever collapse, and, and certainly not in the Western world, and certainly not in a European um, country like Italy, as you say. But it did. It came down to just really poor maintenance regimes, ultimately. Many factors, as you say, which are too much to go into in our mm. short little segment here. But I guess, you know, as we, as you say, as we wrote at the time, asked a lot of questions, particularly in the UK. Highways England did do a, a review, which we, uh, which we wrote about, of its structures. It doesn't have one like Polchevera, but it's got lots of sort of mid-50s, 60s kind of ageing structures. I think importantly, actually, just to clarify, Highways England at the time were very um, de- deliberate about what they were reviewing, weren't they? Because they were, they were quite convinced that they understood the condition yeah. of their assets enough, but they were being reflective quite quickly in the aftermath and they conducted, I think it was a three-month review into That's right, the yeah. process of maintenance, was it? I mean, where do you think they're at with that? Obviously, they completed it, but, I mean, have you heard anything recently? Well, I, I think, well, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting example, actually, I think, which is the uh, the Gade Valley Viaduct on the M25. Um, and what's that? Well, it, it. well, that's a good, fair enough question. So it's it's it was the last bit of the M25 to be built. It was the most complicated bit. That's the orbital road around orbital London, road around London for any indeed. international visit listeners. <laughs> yes, indeed, the eight-lane highway around London, um, and it carries the uh, the M25 over a few things. Most notably, the the, uh, the West Coast uh, Main Line uh, railway line up to Birmingham uh, and beyond. 
uh, uh, um, a canal, um, a river, and it's uh, just a few a things. Deal, a few things. <laughs> the, uh, quite a critical piece yeah. of infrastructure. Mm. It is in a in a quite a bad way, and it's. I think it's interesting because. Um, some quite intensive um, work was carried out recently on it. Um, problems with its with its welds. It's a it's a you know, steel box right. structure. Um, We've heard that one before. As yeah, well, around the network. Um, and that you know those problems were picked up in a, in a, in a in the proper routine inspection kind of way. So Good so news. to answer the yeah. question around Highways England checking its processes and it seems to be they are they are working. But the problem with the interesting thing about that is they've 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 gone in and done some incredible engineering actually to 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 um, fix the kind of the worst um, parts of of the structure. But in in doing that, they've obviously whilst there they've done a thorough inspection of the rest of it, and and there remain some pretty serious issues. It's it's safe to use, it's but it's under constant twenty four seven monitoring. Mm. So it's sounding um, a bit like the old Hammersmith flyover scenario it's, again. It is. It's very critical it, yeah. structure. Yeah. Important part of London kind of you know mm. horrible sort of immediate need mm. to do something and then mm. well yeah sorry you were telling me no what next well and, but what next <laughs> is, is what next because mm. fundamentally it you know it's kind of life expired it's okay some very very good engineering is going on to keep it serviceable through monitoring and such but fun, you know if you had a in a dream world you'd clearly you'd knock it down and start again but you oh. can't really close the m25 for no. a year or whatever it would take to to rebuild that structure. So what do you do? It's yeah. a genuine question. You know, Aging bridges. It's, you know, I think we wrote a little bit about this in the past and particularly around Paul Traverigan, didn't we? Mm. It's, it's wonderful to see these amazing engineering icons built and, and still surviving when they do. Mm. It's devastating when they fail, but that in-between part of understanding the complexity of so many of these bridges that, you know, not too often the same i i remember having a conversation with someone quite senior in the world of consulting not too long ago who said you know now we're in an era where an awful lot of suspension bridges around the world might be coming to the end of their design life or certainly at a point where they could become you know in critical need of of repair but he didn't know of a technique developed yet to work out how to replace the cables on a suspension bridge you know, in in a massive scale, I, I, it does kind of worry me that these rather valuable, very expensive, and and life critical mm. structures have so such big question mark above their heads. Yeah, it's it's it is fascinating in a, from an engineering context, isn't it? But you know, mm. we get all very excited about building, you know, big, sexy, big, big bridges, which is a great thing. Mm. We love writing about them, but actually, the clever engineering now really in addition to that is really going into how do you keep these things alive because they, they you have to you've not you have no choice and this is this this is a, a big problem which is being acknowledged isn't it yeah and and it's not just the iconic bridges it's the daily use bridges out on the local roads as well yeah. there's a re- recent report um from the rac foundation i think they do this annually now um that's found that 3,000 council-maintained road bridges were considered substandard, and that works out one in 23 of the bridges on the network, local local network. So I think an awful lot of um, weight restrictions being imposed. Yeah. You know, there's no, there's not lots of money, and certainly not 6.7 billion. They think it's going to cost to fix them all. That's not easily obtained. It's just a heck of an engineering challenge at yeah. the end of the day. We know we need the best and most creative 
engineers out there to start fixing it. We, they can do it. We've seen it with the other London Bridge we just talked about, Hammersmith flyover. There was an amazingly clever fix on that rather troublesome problem. And just think worldwide what the potential is. And this is, you know, this is a non-London specific issue. This is regional, national, international. I think, you know, global scale challenge. What are the ideas? What are the solutions? Absolutely. Um, so should we, um, before we bring in Andrew, um, one other project which we would just like, think, like to mention is um, we've talked a lot about Crossrail, um, mm. but Crossrail 2 remains a, such a really important project for London. It's worth mentioning, I think, because we uh, had... Uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing Michelle Dix at our Future of Rail conference uh, recently, and it's just oh, just interesting. Michelle there, she was talking just after uh, Transport for North had been speaking, and they're speaking very excitingly about their bold plans they have got. Yeah, for, multi-billion for, for pound. Multi-billion pound um, plans they they have they've got for for the uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail project. Um, and they're getting quite excited because they're just getting ready to start producing their first um, strategic outline business case to go to Treasury to formally put in their their pitch for the for the for the multi-billion pounds they will need to deliver this fantastically worthwhile bit of rail infrastructure in the north of England. And then Michelle comes on stage and she, well, you know, we'd love to be passionate, but we're <laughs> it's we're, we've got perseverance certainly. Uh, we've got positivity and, and we've certainly got patience, but passion is a bit hard to find nowadays. And so goes, because we're now about to have to do our fifth strategic outline business case to go to Treasury. Did the first one tick, second one tick, third one tick, fourth one tick. The project has never not come across as value for money, but because of the delays to Crossroad 1, she's now having to do mm-hmm. her fifth business case to justify the project and I guess I suppose we just express our support and sympathy because that shows how difficult it is to get a major piece of infrastructure into the sort of design delivery phase in this country and I guess we just offer support. As a former chief engineer for Network Rail I suppose Andrew McNaughton's going to have a few things to say about how easy or how difficult it is to get major projects in rail on the on the books. Absolutely. And and that's another that's perhaps the final thing to just say. That's the other story that's been bubbling around this, this month, isn't it? That um uh, we're now into the into the next five year funding um period for rail. Um there's ten billion pounds of, of in upgrade enhancement projects it's called and you know, new projects to be delivered. Unfortunately, eight billion of those ten billions are gonna be spent on things that should have been done in the last five year control period but weren't for various industry issues um, so there's £2 billion worth of new projects potentially out there but no one will let the industry know what those projects are it's a bit frustrating so we are delighted to have with us today Andrew Norton, former Chief Engineer of Network Rail and until very recently Technical Director on High Speed 2 and now advising rail bodies around the world on how to build out their rail networks. So, Andrew, you know, two billion pounds of of projects there. What do you think the priorities are? Maybe I've got a different take to a lot of people, but around the cities, reliability, 
and uh, something I care passionately about, air quality. Mm. Um, one of the reasons I've gone in very strongly on resetting the expectations of electrification is air quality. Um, yeah, other modes of transport contribute a great deal more than rail ever will to problems with air quality. But rail should be the leader, the exemplar. Rail should be electrified. Rail should be electrified and rail should be reliable. And we can get that right. And on an existing system, you can't reconfigure it to achieve what you can with a new build. Mm. But you can make it reliable. Mm. And my, my judgment of my local service is not, does it arrive in London, Victoria, absolutely to the minute it's do i stand five extra minutes in the rain out at my suburban station waiting for the thing mm. yeah just reliability mm. reliability and I, I, I yeah address the carbon issue you know we, we well, yeah address the carbon issue i am actually more concerned about air quality mm. yeah i'm not saying that carbon doesn't matter because that is such a problem for the future but rail doesn't contribute much to the carbon mm. story but it does in places like manchester and leeds contribute considerably to the air quality story yeah still diesel yeah. pacers trundling around spewing well, fumes. just diesel yeah digital technology is changing infrastructure it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries your organisation may already be going digital, but if it's struggling to embrace change or realise the benefits of digital technologies, Bentley invites you to gauge your organisation's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments at bentley.com forward slash going digital. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to hand straight over to Alex, um, who over the years has been far more involved in studying the pros and cons of high-speed rail than I have. So, so Alex, over to you. Okay, I'm no expert, but luckily we are graced with the presence of an expert. Um, I, first off, Andrea, given recent experiences of your your former project, High Speed Two, what uh, what makes it so important that it's high speed? High speed rail is a a sort of small subspecies of the whole world of rail, and at the other end of the spectrum, there's heavy haul rail about you know, 10,000, 15,000 tonne mineral. So it's quite a special uh, category of rail. It's special, it's there for a special purpose, which is to bring cities closer together. It's not about, um, particu- it's not particularly about just another bit of railway. Uh, the difference between high-speed rail and general intercity rail is you're trying to achieve something different. What you're trying to achieve is to bring people and businesses closer together so that at an economic level, people, to use a slightly technical word, interact. Businesses interact. I think there's plenty of evidence. Businesses largely do business with people that you can meet pretty much spontaneously. Sure, everyone's connected. I can probably FaceTime 10 billion people across the planet. Who am I going to do business with? I'm going to do business with people I can trust, I can see, I can shake hands. It's a very human dynamic. Which brings on to the other side of the human dynamic, which is you see across the, across the world countries where there are huge social imbalances. You've got really prosperous capital cities, 
um, center of finance, center of you know, legal, whatever, politics. And you've got other cities which are struggling, where young people leave home. They go to the big city. They go to the place played with gold. They never come back until they retire. So you end up with what should be vibrant cities away from the capital city that are full of young people and old people. They're just too far away to be part of the economy. So you get a big social imbalance. The thing about high-speed rail, and it could be high-speed anything, is the reduction in time. Bringing people closer together. Bringing people and jobs closer together. Yeah? And that's not accumulative, is it? Or it is accumulative, because it doesn't matter. It might just be a small time saving between two nearer cities, but over a, a broader network, yeah. you're really speeding past. You, you're looking to, you think, who are you trying to connect up? Um, I'll always bang away on the magical magic of one hour. Now, it's not, you know, 61 minutes is no good, 59 minutes is spectacularly better, but it's around an hour is a daily commute. People commute longer. You know, I work in Australia where people say, you know, we're tough Australians, we commute for two hours. You go, yeah, but do you know what your kids look like? <laughs> What's your divorce rate? Oh, good point. Um, there, around an hour is the kind of time budget for a daily or a fairly spontaneous business meeting. Yeah, if you and I are in contract together, I can say to you, um, look, we've got to iron this out. I'll see you tomorrow at nine o'clock. Knowing that I'll be back in my business at 11, mm. you know, it's not, uh, let's thumb through the diary, oh, I've got a spare day in August. Right. Yeah, sort of. Is that, is that one hour? Now, one hour, whether it, don't, don't forget about distance, which one hour? Mm. Whether it's, that's whether it's 100 kilometers or 200 kilometers or 250 kilometers, one hour. That's the key. Mm. And that's what High Speed 2 is doing fundamentally. It's made London, Birmingham, and one hour, Birmingham, Manchester. Well, it's it's you know it's that connectivity, and it's like it's that golden one hour. And if you're only doing London to Birmingham and stopping, then you get the one hour. You don't need to go as fast as yeah. I designed high speed too. But it's that is the trunk of the tree. If the roots are in London, the trunk runs north. Birmingham is on the way to Manchester and Leeds, and you know. Birmingham to Leeds today, if you're lucky on the road, is a couple of, two and a half hours, yeah. uh, minus traffic jams, by train, well over two hours, uh, apart from some congestion. Uh, we make it under an hour. Yeah. Under an hour. So pretty much door to door in an hour. So given that, Andrew, what do, you, what do you feel when you hear people very close to the project currently speaking at conferences, which they've been doing recently, saying, oh, we really shouldn't have called it high speed. We actually even thought about renaming it. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I don't have a problem with that because, you know, the first public lecture I did on this was in 2010. And I called it high capacity, high speed, high reliability. Because it's not... Oh, it's high speed. It's reduced journey time. The speed is a consequence. It's not the aim. Of course, it's high capacity because you actually want to create the transport system of the 21st century. But actually, high, capa high capacity, so lots of people can use it. 
high speed so that you've got the journey times you need is no good if the damn thing doesn't work. So high reliability. And engineering in reliability to a new 21st century infra infrastructure is a damn sight easier than trying to back engineer it into Victorian infrastructure. And it's high reliability because there's no, you design it so there's no conflicts between trains, you design it so that the whole system has got the same reliability. Uh, you don't have a single mode of failure. You design it for the 21st century reality of different climate conditions. You know, it can withstand flood, wind, rain, whatever. That a railway built 200 years ago for mineral traffic uh, as part of the Industrial Revolution, however well it's been engineered since, and I spent enough of my life <laughs> doing that, you cannot do it. This is the beauty of starting anew. People understood that in the last century when they built motorways. No one said, well, why do we build the M1? Tell you what, let's build a load of bypasses uh, and 50 mile an hour is good enough. They recognised you could achieve something new with a new transport system. Most people around the world get it. Yeah, yeah, we're a little way behind, I suppose. And coming to that point, how how hard was it back then, nearly a decade ago, and and how hard is it still today? If if it wasn't so politically challenging or publicly challenging, would you go further? Would you have wanted the sort of Scotland branches first up in the main scheme? You've always got to build in stages, because apart from anything else, you don't want to say, "Look, we got a thirty-year project." And at the end of 30 years, a miracle will occur. You actually want to go, look, in a few years' time, you get a whole transfer of people will benefit. And then the ne then more people do. And actually, you, can, you want to build a momentum. Now, it's, it's relatively hard with uh, a new system because you can't build 20 kilometres of it and go... Um, now there's a huge bit. You've actually got to go and build a couple of hundred kilometres of the thing. So the first stage is inevitably big. Uh, so you don't have quite the benefit you do of, a, of an upgrade which says we'll save two minutes this year and two minutes next year and two minutes next year. But actually no one ever really twigs that it's being improved uh, or a percentage point on reliability. Um, so it will be a series of big bangs. And we saw, look, look, look at high speed one conceived I know it's conceived uh, as a political project but look at the difference to East Kent it is thriving it is full of um, people who never would have gone and lived there if it was still an hour and three quarters from London mm. it's an hour from London it's a thriving yeah. place the magic hour it's the magic hour yeah. so if I take that, that you need to do it in stages. I absolutely get that. Crossroad 2, talking the same sort of language now. absolutely get that. Yeah. So, so given that, are we starting at the right end? Are we doing the right stage first? I have a very simple... Uh, you, said, you know I said tree. Yep. God generally builds trees from the roots up. You don't tend to build from the leaves back. <laughs> That's assuming London is your... It's is, the root. Is, 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 yeah. Well, you can say is Birmingham is the roots, and I I was the first, I think, to say, look, I designed this, that Birmingham is the heart of a network. Mm -hmm. And Birmingham went, you're right. 
and that justified why the station is uh, where they are in Birmingham and why the route is where it is in Birmingham is because it's the heart of a network but fundamentally well no, you've got choices you've got a choice you could say look the most important thing in the country is to connect Birmingham and, and Leeds up first and as uh, someone who grew up in Leeds I could don't kind of get that because Leeds is, is really the centre of the entire universe, oh, yes. as, as every Yorkshireman <laughs> knows. Um, but uh, <laughs> it takes the Yorkshireman to get away with a statement like that. The, 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 <laughs> but actually, there is also a pressing problem of London. And we talked about the difference, a, redu a massive reduction in journey time achieves back to the capital city. A huge chunk of the benefit of investing in high speed two is the released capacity on the existing mm. railways into London, which are full. Mm. You, if you go to Euston and look at any rush hour train out to Milton Keynes, Rugby, all the growth areas where this, this country needs to grow, have new housing, where not necessarily everybody will commute every day into London. But though that huge area of development between uh, of Rugby, Northampton, Milton Keynes, that, uh, Coventry, that, that sort of area, they can't travel anywhere. They'll be landlocked, and therefore it can't prosper. High Speed 2 creates a whole new tranche of capacity. Um, as, remember the time when we first launched the route and... and uh, the then people in charge at Milton Keynes said, oh, I'm not sure we benefit because High Speed 2 doesn't stop in Milton <laughs> Keynes. And we said, no, 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 come down the station. 11 times an hour, there is a very fast train to London. But do you know what? Only two of them stop. <laughs> the rest whoosh through. Now, how would it be if you had a service every five minutes to London in, you know, 35 minutes? God, that's transformational. It unlocks the whole of that market. And that still leaves room over for a whole new tranche of freight paths. Um, any, a lot of people will still go, oh, I'm not sure about the investment in high-speed rail, blah, blah, blah. Your, your letters columns are obviously are often full of, full of people Frequently. Who, who are struggling into the 21st century. <laughs> but... Say, look, this is an, a means to unblock the existing artery between London and the West Midlands, which and that artery can now take more freight train. Every freight path we can create on the West Coast Main Line is 300,000 lorry movements a year off the motorway. That's not my figures. That was campaign for better transport's figures. Yeah, that is road safety benefit that is pollution benefit that is you know you may never use high speed to you will still benefit from it okay well all right so good argument about why it needs to does need to start finish whichever way you're traveling um at london but does it have to terminate at euston andrew that's very expensive coming into euston isn't it it's, it's proving a bit tricky well you're Old not Oaks doing got this. A great interchange. None of this is being done uh, as. This is not about engineering. This is about people. Where do people want to go? 
Old Oak Common could become a destination of choice in Indeed. London. I don't know. It's, it's but it's not the changing. only destination no. of choice. And it is a big destination of choice. And uh, dear, oh dear, I spent three years in Parliament explaining very carefully around a, th- a quarter to a third of people will go to Old Oak Common. And they will change into Crossrail or Old Oak Common will build out. It would be fascinating. But two-thirds of the people, it will be still much... Where they actually want to go to is via Euston. The days when you said, oh, look, we just built some socking great big terminal in the middle of London. The capacity of this thing is like landing a jumbo jet every 60 seconds. Now, you can do that. And what are you going to do? You're going to overwhelm that place. And then somebody will say, we need three new tube lines. Uh, but actually, it's just inconvenient for people. So we very carefully, with Transport for London, chose the places where people could most easily do a simple connection and get to where they actually wanted to get to. No good saving you know, an hour from Manchester to spend half an hour in a taxi queue. Yep. Duh. Uh, as to Euston, well, um, we started with 25 sites, I seem to remember, <laughs> and we whittled them down. Uh, my idea that we should actually build it in Green Park and take over a building at the end of it um, as, the, as, the, um, as a natural uh, terminus... Not the Ritz. Uh, ..was... No, 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 the <laughs> other end. <laughs> Uh, was was oh, not an idea. <laughs> yeah. the, the, but it. it's a matter of record that we we with you know transport for London, who've actually got to then pick up the passenger and take them to the destination, or vice versa, and with others whittled it down and said, actually, it's somewhere along the Euston Road. If High Speed Two had been driven forward fifteen years earlier, at the time when you know some lesser countries like France and Germany and Italy and Spain <laughs> and Belgium and Holland have been doing high-speed rail. There would have been a lot more land available yep. in central London. Mm-hmm. King's Cross Freight Yard, St Pancras Freight Yard, Marylebone Freight Yard, <laughs> Bow Freight Yard, they're all gone. What you're left with is Euston is a good place to land from connectivity point of view. Is not cheap but boy, you should have seen the other alternatives. Mm. <laughs> but if you don't bring people into the city, this is the reason you're bringing them, for con- you know, mm. to go, yeah, we are going to transform your life by ending in a field somewhere outside London. Doesn't do it for many people. That investment you've mentioned and the, and the costs of, you know, the prohibitive costs of central yeah. London for some of the sites, how do you keep making sure that HS2 wins the cost argument? and um, Or does it not have to try that hard, actually? Do you think it would actually be cost-effective at twice the price or three times the price, given what will be released on the wider network? And a supplementary thing, if you do have a word of caution to the designers and builders of High Speed 2 today about keeping control of those costs... What, what are you thinking? Gosh, that's a multi-layered question, isn't it? I should have broken it down, sorry. <laughs> I should have saved question. some of it. Um, <laughs> hmm. I don't... There's nothing worse than someone who has been involved in something for a decade telling his successors uh, how to do things. You know, sort of, oh, is the old boy still chundering on? Makes good listening. Um, yeah. But there is... 
The general principle, and this is not specific to anything high-speed, any other project you like, is it's got to be good enough to actually deliver the promise. Spending, you know, 80% 80, 80 of the budget to achieve something that was 50% as good mm. is not value engineering. It's mm. cost reduction. Yeah. Mm. You know, too many value engineering exercises are where people have engineered the out of the value. Mm. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we'll edit that there. But you then take it... You can make an argument, and in other parts of the world, uh, it's a, quite a serious thing that says, those are the transport benefits. Mm. Oh, it doesn't really stack up for that. You'd be better off building a few bypasses. Um, there are the wider economic benefits because we can develop around the stations. Yeah, develop Euston, develop Old Oak Common, develop mm. Birmingham. And we've learned lots about that since the project's inception, yeah. I suppose. And develop well, Manchester evidence. and develop Leeds uh, South Side, so it's catalyst for uh, growth in, in each of the cities. Then you can take a view uh, from, and partly from experience of High Speed One, but other places around the world that says, no, there is a general uplift of the economic activity in the whole area because it it is an enabler for that um, and it and it's not just about new jobs for bankers and journalists and the like and white and skilled white you know, every one of those jobs creates three or four other jobs their children need educated new teaching jobs they need kept healthy new health jobs they need you, they need their barrister coffee at the most trivial level. There are all manner, uh, they want their house extensions. There are a whole series of jobs that are only created because those first jobs exist. Now, you, know, you know I'm working in Australia. That is a huge part of it, which says, here is a city, here are its economic engines, uh, and one of them may be, it's the legal centre, or it's an advanced manufacturing centre, but don't underestimate all the other jobs that will be created off the back of those new jobs. Yep. Now, when you start adding those in, you get a very different econ uh, argument to you know, the classic transport case. We're a bit, I think, in this country, a bit nervous about that. And you don't see that particularly. You see it being played with High Speed 2, with Crossrail 2, with Crossrail 1. And it kind of lands at an emotional level. But I don't think we're quite ready as a country to land it at the hard numbers level. Because you're going to go, how do you know that's going to ha yeah. happen? There's lots of other economic uh, levers that the government has to pull to make it happen, like, like rezoning land, like, like making it an incentive for people to create jobs in those areas. So it's not the be-all and end-all. It's one of the key enablers. But without that connectivity, you can zone land as much as you like. Think of some of the new towns that were created in the 60s and 70s. They're not new towns. They're new slums because they're not connected. They become dumping grounds if you're not careful. Yeah. So, I mean, there are obviously cost challenges around HS2 at the moment, or at least... You, you show, you show me a major infrastructure project now mm. where they're not cost challenges. Yeah. Mm. And you run one of the leading um, sort of organs of the industry. 
bee-leading organ, I think you'll find. Naturally, Mark, <laughs> as we're sitting in your office. Um, there is, I think, a significant challenge about the capability of the civil engineering industry. Um, and, you know, I sit on as the trustee board of the civils and you look and go, we've talked for several decades now about the attractiveness of the industry compared with other yep. other industries, uh, the attractiveness of, or the commitment of companies to tomorrow, uh, how attractive those companies are to investors in the City of London. Uh, it's not hard to raise money in the City of London for an IT company. Um, I think, as uh, you know, without naming too many, you saw the valuation put on train line, mm. uh, a booking or a booking yeah. system. Yeah. Look at the valuation on Expedia. Expedia doesn't do anything; it doesn't make anything. Yeah. It connects people, uh, connects people, and and, so, and and things virtually. What is the value on our big contractors, our big consultants? Well, not it's much. Not much. And a fraction of the value on almost the thinnest startup IT. Mm. Now, that's, that makes it very different, difficult for those companies to invest in people yep. and invest in plant. And you know, I go to China, I go to Japan, I see stunning innovation in uh, t construction techniques, mm. um, things done in cities without major disruption, without huge cost inflation. But those require major investment. And if you're running a company where the, the, your, your investors are not prepared to invest, it's really difficult, isn't it? So I think you, 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 know, you highlight HS2, it's kind of almost a poster child because yeah. it's so big. But you know, high, um, Crossrail 1, Crossrail 2. You've seen Highways England. Um, do a little bit of uh, picking and selecting. Uh, we get a good price for this. Uh, the contractors are capable of doing it, so they're giving us a reasonable price. We get on and do that. It's it's tough when you're doing the first stage of high speed two or the first stage of, of you know crossrail one. If it stopped halfway through London, wouldn't be crossrail. <laughs> high speed two, if it stops in a field in Buckinghamshire, isn't high speed two. Um, we just have to understand there are challenges for the industry and see how the industry can help itself and how we can help the industry. Okay. It's a very long way of saying, look, there's nothing special about HS2. It's a big lump of infrastructure and this country, if it's going to have any confidence in its future, has still got to keep confidence in its ability to do big infrastructure. Yeah. Rallying call. So, HS2... It's still going to happen? I've just invested 10 years of my life in HS2 because I believe it is the only thing that is going to change the, the balance of this country in this century. We ain't building motorways. If you think electrification of road transport is going to change the relationship between cities, duh. It is the only investment you can make that will make this country work differently. 
Okay. Well, that's how did you say that? Because I was keen to let's you know let's move, and there's lots more to talk about. And when we talk yeah. future of rail, um, well, an obvious thing we talk future rail always comes up when as soon as you start talking about the future of rail, someone mentions the hyperloop, and someone says, "Why are we?" And I guess I am going a bit back to HS2 here, but only as an example, because there's loads of examples around the world. Um, so it doesn't have to be HS2. It no. could be California. It could be It could be the anywhere. Middle East. It could be Australia. It is, yeah. Why are we building high-speed railways when we should be investing in Hyperloop? Why is every country building high-speed railways rather than uh, investing in Hyperloop? Well, I guess it's a little bit unproven. Because <laughs> high-speed rail works. It is... Um, predictable. Uh, it, it's very. It meets the need, which is you bring people from city to city reliably, in the time that they need to, and it is there, and it has capacity. Remember that high-speed rail has the capacity of for people carrying of more than two new motorways. I'm just going to say, the people who've studied it have come currently come to the conclusion that the capacity per hour is somewhere between about six to seven hundred people and maybe at tops about fifteen hundred to two thousand people. Mm-hmm. That is a tenth of the capacity of a high speed rail right. network. That's a quite a compelling argument, yeah. isn't it? And then you've got to account for the people and who don't want to travel eleven hundred kilometers per hour. So forget, you know, sort of Assumption that you know that they will sort out the safety case mm. for propelling people underground in blah 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 blah, uh, and I just don't need to talk about that. It's not got any capacity, and do you really think a uh, something which has to be so straight and level that it can uh, that people can resist uh, the, the the forces of uh, nature? is going to be any cheaper than a railway, which is yeah, a third to a half the width of a motorway. Do you really think it's going to be cheaper? Well, uh, ten times cheaper because there's a tenth of the capacity. And how does something which is only... It's like, uh, yeah. How does that rebalance an economy if only a few people an hour can travel? How does that meet the social equity test? How does that meet the changing the relationship between cities test? It's a piece of of transport. High-speed rail is part of changing a country's makeup. Beyond high speed, because that is a big faction, but not the only faction. Yeah. What what does the future of rail look like out there, and what are the trends that you're seeing that you're encouraged by? Gosh, there's so many trends. Um, cities are the powerhouses of countries, and cities have got to work. And. You don't get very high up the scale of a city before you're talking about needing to have some sort of guided transport, public transport system. You know, there's not many successful cities where you go, it's it's okay if you can walk, cycle or have a car. Um, Then you get busways and they've got a capacity. But when you go into serious capacity, you end up with some 
guided transport system. It's the preferred commuter transport, really, isn't it? As well? Because with it comes, I was a, again, good friend of mine. I said, "Why is it that no, when you talk, you can say you can have a guided bus system or you can have a tram? Why did everybody go? I want a tram because it's permanent." I think it's worth buying property out of there. It's worth me, you know, building, taking my family out of there because nobody's going to take this away. Um, well, they did in the sixties in this country, didn't they? <laughs> well, there we go. That's a progressive nation for you. <laughs> but guided system and rail, steel wheel on steel rail, is still a pretty reliable system. Um, there's plenty of innovation in tramways to reduce the cost so that you don't have to re, re, um, re-engineer every existing utility in the road before you put a tram <laughs> in. There's, because the, the rest of the world goes, light rail, oh no, we've got more than about 4,000 people an hour, we need something, oh, it's called a metro. It's a city. So the metro is either going to be up in the air or underground. And increasingly it's underground. The one aspect of civil engineering that I think uh, there is a really good story about is tunnelling. And um, once upon a time tunnelling was seen as kind of dangerous territory. Very risky. And it was dangerous territory, usually for the workers Mm. in it. Now tunnelling is sort of, well it's pretty certain isn't it? Um, we go underneath things, we don't interrupt uh, the economy. Uh, it's pretty predictable cost, even if it's quite a high cost, but it's mm. predictable. Um, and at the end of it, you've got something which is as permanent as it comes. Now, how many, how many new metros is China building at once? At once? Countless. Tell us. 32. 32. <laughs> 32 metros, most of them will be not far short of the size of London underground. Gosh. Now, they haven't, you know, they're doing that for a reason. It's actually the most efficient way of carrying people around. And it's the most efficient way of opening up a city. Um, I talked about an hour earlier, but there's also that wonderful half hour metric which says go back in history. How big was ancient Rome across? It was about half an hour walking distance, actually. How big uh, was 15th century uh, Venice? Well, it's actually Venice hasn't changed. It's half an hour. How big was um, Vienna, capital of the, the empire, Austro-Hungarian empire? Oh, it's half an hour from side to side. How big was city of London? It's half an hour. It's only, I think, when Chicago started introducing its transit system that the city physically could be bigger, but it's still half an hour city. <laughs> and the cities that don't work well are the cities, particularly in South America, which has just gone <laughs> and sprawled. Um, and Australia has let cities sprawl and is now back engineering. What's the thing that was opened really successfully a few weeks ago? The first metro in Sydney. And people just, wow. This is 21st century. We'll have a few more of these. Mm. There's a big global market out there. It, 
is, is the UK in a place to be a market leader, a, a world leader in delivering rail systems around the world? Well, from I what think, you see around the world? I, th- I think it potentially is. But potentially. And it comes back to my earlier comment is are we prepared to invest in skills? Are we, and I don't mean is every civil engineer going to go and stand in front of a school, uh, a primary school, and say, building things is great, come and build things? Um, you know, I'm not de- going to decry the people who do that, but actually, you know, I work in a couple of universities. It always amazes me that there you have, we, we churn out in this country some of the world's best engineering graduates. We have a brilliant tertiary sector, um, a good balance of teaching and research, and people spend three or four years, normally four years, in that environment being moulded. When do the uh, future employers rock up? Well, guess what? I turn up for a day somewhere after about three and three quarter years and say yeah want a job and get surprised when people go no not really (laughs) you haven't been interested in us we we committed to civil engineering you know five years ago when we you know filled in our our forms we've been at university three and a half years and now you turn up and go want a job I mean, that's rubbish. Yeah. So it's up to us as industry people to convert that, those hundreds of people who start doing a civil engineering course that they think actually the civil engineering industry cares that they are successful, that they are the future. Now, you, show, you work with so many people. Well, you know, how many companies are serious about that? Well, I think it's pretty poor. I guess it, it comes back to, as you were saying earlier, do you look at, the, look at the margins, look at the financial stability of a lot of these companies? I guess they will argue, can't afford to do it. Can't afford to succeed. Can't afford to survive. Well, the people who say that don't deserve to be in charge of anything. Are we going to build a future in this country is infrastructure going to be something that the government says it, we should invest in infrastructure and do you know what, we got the people to do it and the people that we got go, oh we can't be bothered to invest in the people in young people hmm. it does not make sense to me well how, what would you like to see happen how, what, what would good look like I guess good looks to me like every engineering student who's by the time they're in their third year there are companies working with each of the um, universities to give real projects and real opportunities that will not that will draw those young people into our future we come a long way from the future of rail. This is the future of the civil engineering industry. Because if the civil engineering industry carries on like it does, then it will be like, you know, what happened to dinosaurs? Yeah. They didn't adapt. Yeah. We're still struggling in this country about BIM. 
Oh, that's an extra cost. Oh dear, I don't understand it. How do you switch the machine on? <laughs> Not, yeah. Generation 2020 was brought up doing everything virtually. Yeah. It designed, it, this is its natural environment. You know, put the ink away. Well, that's interesting, sir. I mean, also <laughs> this month we're, we're talking about the digital twin and, and how we get to that place of in, yeah. in, in, in rail, rail yeah. particularly, because it's future rail, but more broadly. But it shouldn't be the future. <laughs> it should be now. It should be now. You're right. It should be now. And who are the people that are going to put that in? Not, not old people like me. <laughs> Well, we are briefly going off message here, but it is interesting, I think. I'm we, sorry we're going off message. No, but it's, it's a good, it's a good it off is, message. It is yeah. vital for the future. It is vital. But it's, and, and, and for today, you know, as you point out, it's actually know. already It's like now. Yeah. And then there's a challenge, which you well know, which is does the, the venerable institution of civil engineers recognise the 21st century is about civil engineering is done differently. It is not shoveling with attitude. <laughs> or lack um, of attitude in some cases. The IC's got rid of that strap line then, has it? <laughs> with attitude. It's not the institution of colouring engineers <laughs> or the institution of construction engineers. Mm. God help us that it be seen as the institution of project managers. That would Wait. be bad. It's not. It's meant to be the heart mm. of engineering, and it can be. And yeah, you were probably at the Global Engineering Congress. Civils can lead the world. And I think there's plenty of people in the civils that will make that happen. Mm. I'm quite excited by the civils. Good. But anyway, we drifted completely off the future well, we have of rail. The future of rail. There are four challenges. Uh, there are four challenges. There are four types. There's five. Four types of rail. There is the rail between cities. By nature. It has to bring cities close together because cities are where the economies of a country live. And that is usually high-speed rail. It's called high-speed rail, but as I said before, it's high-speed, high-capacity, high-reliability. You can depend on it. Seven days a week. There is the means by which people can move around a city, which is urban rail, whether it be trams or metros. There is the means by which people can work in cities but not live in cities, which is suburban rail. Um, and there is rail which moves logistics. And they are, there are, those are four transport connectivity problems for which in, many, in most, but not all cases, the right solution is steel wheel on steel rail. There are technologies which will change. You know. Some transport, you know, replacing some, some white vans with maybe drones or robotics of some form. You know, white van is effectively, it can be robotic with, with it's just rubber tired. And these, if it's robotic, it's guided transport, actually. Yeah. Um, but when you come to a certain, when you've got a certain volume on a certain corridor, then rail is more efficient than the alternatives. Steel wheel on steel rail is incredibly low uh, energy. Um, I'm fond of reminding people that the contact between a wheel and a rail is smaller than your fingernail, and yet you transmit 20 tonnes through it and 1,000 horsepower. 
So the engineering of rail is actually quite sophisticated. It's not this and and rail needs to set its stall out for young people. That is a very high technology system, and it's controlled by software. It is modern engineering. It is not something which the Romans invented called road. <laughs> so there you Compelling. go. Compelling. Compelling. You're excited. We're excited. We're excited listening. Well, um, I've, I've been in this game 46 years, man and boy. <laughs> and I'm still excited every day. Oh. I get angry every day for some of the things we've talked about. But I'm excited because it delivers the future and we are going to live in the future and we make the future and we have a responsibility to our children to make that future and to make their future perfect i can't see why they won't be signing up to be civil engineers no. couldn't end it a better way thank you andrew thank you very much for talking to us today thank you a pleasure so that's it Episode 3, all done. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more and find out more about the Polchevera anniversary, do look out for the September issue of New Civil Engineer. We have our roving reporter, Kat Smale, who was on the scene last year, going back out there to find out where the rebuild is at. Fantastic. Yep. Now, do, do, do look out for that. And all left for me to say is to, uh, is to, is to tee up our next episode of the Engineers Collective, uh, which will be out in two weeks' time, and will feature a, uh, a special interview Alex and I conducted with Bupinder Singh, our Chief Product Officer at Bentley Systems, talking about the digital twin and how it is going to reshape infrastructure design, delivery, and operations. In the meantime... Uh, hit subscribe, give us a nice review and share this podcast with all your friends.